Camille Galev, uh, my former uh, Beijing uh, grad student classmate, um, Twitter Illuminati, and uh, budding open source researcher entrepreneur, it seems, here today on October 6th, 2022, to talk about Russia and Ukraine. Camille, welcome to China Talk. Thank you a lot, Jordan. The prospect of nuclear escalation. What are your general thoughts? And does this idea of losing to the US versus losing to the Ukraine uh, apply at all as you think about how um, Putin is uh, considering nuclear weapons? I think this could be um, rational from Putin's perspective. That doesn't mean he will necessarily make a nuclear strike, but that makes it possible exactly in order to trigger the direct American reaction. So uh, in a, it's rational, it could be rational domestic policy-wise because you would uh, transform the unmanageable risk of losing to Ukraine to manageable risk of losing to the US. So uh, I see it possible for this reason. Uh, now, another factor to consider, when we are discussing Russian great power status, we are always uh, referring to its nuclear power, to its nuclear power status. Uh, especially when now we see Russian conventional army is not that great as we thought before. Uh, but um, I think, I think that too many analysts see is as unproblematic. So let's problematize it. Too many journalists, analysts, even politicians, they regard Russian nuclear status as some like imminent feature of reality. So, you know, grass is green, sky is blue, Russia is nuclear power. It's like objective fact of reality. But the question too many ask is how Russia even remains nuclear power after a massive deindustrialization of 1990s. Uh, the thing is, um, in uh, 1990s, Russian military industry suffered enormous uh, contraction. And due to acceleration effect, Russians mean of means of production producing industry, it suffered even more abrupt contraction. So uh, what did it mean? It means that in the 1990s, Russian uh, machine tools industry, Soviet machine tools industry, it died. And it died, I mean, not only production died, but also the entire associated technological chains. Uh, numerical control production, metal cutting instruments production, bearings production, spindles production, ball screws production, and so on and so on. It all died. Uh, and what didn't die in 1990s died in 2000s. Why? Uh, because by the end of 1990s, those few Russian producers who could afford buying new industrial equipment switched to import. So by the late 1990s, even before Putin came to power, Russia effectively started outsourcing its production of industrial equipment. Theoretically, theoretically, Putin could have done something with it when he came to power, but he didn't. He pumped lots of oil revenues into the military buildup and into the military industry. Uh, but all these ambitious federal programs for the military reconstructions, they were not, um, they were not, um, there was no program of uh, reviving the mission tools building production. 
As a result, basically all this money military plans got from Putin for the military buildup, they spent on buying equipment from abroad, uh, from developed countries, not from China. Uh, first attempts to kind of change the situation, they came only in 2010s, I think largely as a result of Georgian war, when the Russian government first got concerned um, about a too strong interdependency, but uh, effect was very moderate. Why? Uh, because you could not rebuild and revive the entire technological chain. So uh, even if Russia has some domestic productions now, um, it is mostly dying screwdriver assembly. Uh, for example, server drives. Russia produces zero server drives for uh, CNC machine tools. I'm just giving one simple example, which means that in practice, the interdependency on industrial equipment, it's total. It's 100% basically. Um, so, continuation of Russian uh, status and Russia remaining the nuclear power, it um, depends on the goodwill of the West. Basically, the nuclear arsenal, the nuclear delivery systems arsenal, the land army arsenal, it cannot be even maintained, let alone expanded, without the continuous uh, import of hardware and software from the developed countries. Basically, Putin cannot nuke you until you supply him with all the necessary equipment of so and software to maintain his nuclear arsenal. Basically, well, you, need to, do a lot of you yeah. need to do a lot of work to allow Putin nuke you. He won't nuke you. He, he won't be able to nuke you if, you if you don't help him. One can only hope that there are enough, you know, bugs in that system to be exploited. Camille, you've got five minutes with, let's start with, uh, yeah, let's start with Biden. What, what do you tell him? Let's start with Biden. If I had five minutes with Biden, I would tell him uh, that um, maybe, maybe the problem with the current U.S. strategy, it's not so much some tactical decisions regarding this war and involvement in this war as maybe the lack of a broader vision. So kind of um, imagine Russia is inflicted a military defeat upon, which is absolutely possible, as it's clear by this point. What next? And I think the problem is, uh, maybe, there may be a problem with uh, much of the disestablishment just not seeing uh, any alternative to the current regime. So basically, majority, I would assume, still uh, presumes that Putin and his clique go and hold power in Moscow. Um, others would uh, wish for some group of Moscow so-called liberal opposition taking into power, uh, taking the power and basically um, rebuilding and regrouping their um, uh, Russian system again. I think that the solution to the current situation is not um, the de-escalation as so many proposed and it's not the um, regime change as many propose now, uh, it should be decolonization of Russia. Because Russia is not uh, so much a nation state, um, like, I don't know, Germany or Italy. 
it's basically the last European colonial empire that wasn't decolonized. Russia, it's more like just imagine if Portuguese empire just stayed intact and Brazil was still ruled from Lisbon. That's very, very close to how Russian empire is governed in reality. So I think if um, decolonization of Russian empire and its dismantlement could be put into um, the focus, now it, um, I think, yeah, it could be, uh, it could be, it would be a very good thing. But uh, in order um, to do it, it would be necessary to talk with the regional actors, with the regional interest groups, uh, and with regional activists. Um, I find it very problematic, and I saw it, you see, lots of times, that uh, foreign policymakers, they're just unwilling to have serious discussions with anyone, uh, except for um, basically Moscow liberal opposition who just want to keep the empire intact. And it would be advantageous if they could at least listen to other perspectives that I'm afraid they're currently ignoring. So for, I guess, full disclosure, Camille is a ethnic Tatar, which is the, uh, the second largest uh, ethnicity in, uh, in, the, in the Russian Federation currently. Or should I, should I put that in? I don't know. I don't, I don't have to. No, yeah, obviously I'm a Tatar. I don't consider myself Russian. Okay. Um, and as a Tatar, Zelensky, I, what would you find, I find it very problematic that uh, my people and other people, they served as uh, tax-paying population and as cannon fodder for like Russian imperial wars for centuries. And maybe, maybe at this point, I have a hope um, that the situation could just stop. That uh, and yes, I hope this could be a way out. Camille, who who else do you want to talk to? Uh, Navalny, Igor Sechin. I don't know who who who's on your list. Uh, if I were to make a message to uh, the Russian, let's say broadly understood ruling class, I would say them the following: uh, Russia is heading to major crisis, and at this point, it's obvious. Um, and a crisis, it's always dangerous, but it always opens some opportunities. So, um, in a sense, in a sense, you could compare it with, to a biblical jubilee. So, kind of debts being annulled, which is uh, bad if you are a creditor, but it's very good if you are a debtor. Which opens very many opportunities on every level. So, uh, if you are an actor who borrowed power from the current regime, then it could, present, it could present you with the opportunity to annul this debt and break free. Uh, consider like Nazarbayev. Uh, he used to be basically a party official governing Kazakhstan on behalf of the Communist Party, who kind of borrowed his debt from Moscow. But when uh, Moscow went into a major political crisis, he annulled his debt and broke free. And this happened on many, many levels, both with political actors, business actors, and so on. Uh, that's one thing. Another thing is that associating with current regime, it's uh, not, uh, most probably it's not a pragmatic decision for you. Most probably it's counterproductive for you. Uh, because this regime um, is going to... Um, basically, you would invest your uh, reputation, your name, your resources into a quickly depreciating active. 
It's just into a quickly depreciating asset. It just makes no sense to strive very hard to advance yourself within the ranks of uh, current Russian power hierarchy, as many as are doing, because the value of this asset most probably going to depreciate very soon and without prior notice. Uh, instead, the best thing you could do is to prepare for the chaos uh, which will most probably happen within a year uh, and uh, prepare your personal strategy, strategy for yourself, for your family, and, make it for, and maybe for your city, maybe for your region, uh, when it happens. Many people are doing this right now. So if you don't think about a potential chaos and what you are going to do uh, in this case right now, um, I think it's just dumb. Um, do you even want to talk to Putin? Is it worth saying something to him? What's the, when he picks up the phone, what do you No, 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 no. I think Putin is a smart man and he knows what he's doing. And I don't think any of my advice uh, would change it anyway. <laughs> so how should people think about Russian elites, uh, their relationship to Putin and the broader decision-making and policy-making apparatus within uh, the Russian Federation? That's a really good question. I would say one problem we may have with media narrative, and I would say even with like academic analysis at times, it's over concentration and on Putin and only on him. So that's kind of um, advantageous way to think about it. And indeed, Russia is a country with huge concentration of power. But I think the problem is that this approach, kind of identifying Russia with Putin and equating it with Putin, or even equating elites with Putin. It misses a key element, is that elites, they exist of humans who are self-aware, self-conscious, and self-servient, and tend to pursue their own interests, maximize their own utility. Not the one of system or of Putin. And that's kind of what we miss too often in analysis. Let me give you just one, um, maybe, example, very visual one, just to convey my point. One thing very many Russian patriots who are absolutely pro-war were complaining about and uh, wondering why it's even happening is where Russia spends money. Yes, of course, Russia invests a lot of money in this war, but many objectively corrupt and extremely wasteful projects, for example, like... Mm, City beautification of Moscow, uh, including, for example, changing the pavements on the road every year, sometimes two times a year. A very expensive infrastructure projects on Moscow, um, like very expensive flowers, uh, like on Moscow streets, mm. buying like drones for illumination, not for war. Buying uh, kind of, you know, these dog, robotic dog drones, like mostly for prestige reason, they continue and sometimes even, even expand in scale. And people are wondering why it's even happening. Like if Russia is pursuing a major war, maybe resources should be invested there. And indeed, if we stay on like Putin's level of rationality, this makes no sense. This makes total sense though if we go down. If you are um, like some mid-level 
executive, some mid-level official, uh, and you may suspect that your country is probably going down, that your system is at huge risk. You have two options. One is basically to stop stealing, to try to invest all of this into survival of the system. Another option is to steal as much as you can, as long as you still can. And obviously, uh, much of the ruling class, much of the officials, they're choosing second options. And so how does this how does this inhibit or constrain um, or shape the sort of decision making landscape going forward and, and what this means for the war in the future of Russia? Mm -hmm. I would say is that the broader ruling class, the broader officialdom, they chose uh, very different strategies when it comes to this war. For example, um, one interesting thing about Putin is that he's usually trying to um, he's usually trying to avoid taking unpopular decisions, but he's delegating these to his subordinates. For example, um, a good example is quarantine. Lockdown was very, very unpopular in Russia. That's why Putin didn't declare it, but delegated it to governors. Declare it if you deem it necessary, because he knows that people in general don't like it. Putin doesn't want to take unpopular decisions. Uh, same sometimes goes with mobilization. He kind of declared mobilization in general, but he delegated like specific tasks to regional powers, to governors. And you saw, and you saw it long ago, that different regional actors took very different strategies regarding the conflicts. Some were mobilizing unironically, and like months ago, starting from spring. So they unironically mm, recruited people, they unironically formed these like volunteer battalions and sent them to Ukraine. Like Ramzan Kadyrov is of course the best known example. But there were a bunch of other governors who basically waged this war unironically. And kind of what is common denominator, they tend to be under 50, like younger guys who still hope for career. Mm, there was a number of guys who mm, kind of faked it. Who faked it? So basically, they would oblige to these decisions, they wouldn't argue, uh, but they wouldn't really do anything for all sorts of reasons. There was, I would say, an interesting thing. People who I think, I think, I suspect them of trying to sabotage the war in general. And the head of this party would be Sergei Sabanin, the head of Moscow. These guys tried to launch the new quarantine, tried to new, launch the new lockdown. And you saw it very clearly when you look at COVID statistics in Russia, that there was a bunch of governors, usually older governors, in whose regions, and not in the neighboring ones, you um, saw like increase in cases, increase in like lockdown measures. So yes, I think that at least a bunch a faction within the Russian elites, it did, it wanted to sabotage the war by imposing a new lockdown. They failed. And the fourth group, and you also see it very clearly, it's people who are preparing for the civil war. And yeah, it's pretty obvious in Russia that a group of decision makers within the ruling class, uh, they do not invest available resources in the military victory of Ukraine, but instead they prepare uh, for the situation when Russia gets into chaos. So let's talk about that then. How does that happen? Look, it's very interesting. 
Just let me say that the most characteristic feature of Putin's regime until now, basically until this year, was extreme concentration of Siloviki power in Moscow, in the heads of federal power, in the heads of president. In the pre-Putin's era, it was different. For example, in Soviet Union, police, investigators, they were answerable to regional communist um, leaders, not directly to Moscow. So basically, if, for example, I'm a party secretary of Omsk, uh, which means I'm governor of Omsk, police and all of these internal security forces, they're answerable directly to me. And I could influence even the KGB. So I had control over them. Uh, in fact, in Soviet times, even um, the military powers, they were often integrated into the local communist powers. So, for example, uh, local military commanders, they were represented on local party bureaus. So civilian and military and Siloviki powers, they are not very clearly divided. And that largely continues through the 1990s. It absolutely stopped when Putin came to power. One big rational, uh, one um, big rational of Putin's centralization was to strip regional actors of any power over people with guns. So strict separation of civilian power with not only the military, but also with law enforcement. So at the time Putin came to power, police and security forces were often answerable to governors formally or informally. Putin stopped this. You are governor. You have no power at all over police, FSB, prosecute, uh, like investigators, attorneys, like National Guard, whatever. So even, even this year, uh, he stripped last governors of Russia, except for Kadyrov, of course, who still had their own bodyguards of their own bodyguards and imposed National Guard instead. So it was very, very important. Local powers should have zero command over people with guns. And it broke this year. And this year it was complete U-turn. Why? Uh, partially because Putin, uh, Putin is very, very dependent in a sort of, of on public opinion. Mm. And he avoids taking unpopular measures. It led in practice into a delegation of much of mobilization and much of recruitment of military and paramilitary to all sorts of uh, regional and non-state actors. So uh, if in the beginning of this year, almost all armed people in Russia were direct, were, in, were included in formalized bureaucratic structures directly answerable to Moscow, now it's not really the case. Now you have a number of what is called milita private military companies, which may or may not be private, who on paper do not exist at all, who are not regulated by any laws of procedures, and who, um, and much of the war in Ukraine, much military actions is delegated to them. Consider Wagner Group. It's a group which does not even exist according to the Russian law, which in fact comprises somewhat of state in, within state, and it has everything, starting from infantry to air defense and to fighter jets. Uh, 
it's difficult to give a quantitative estimate, but it seems that a lot of like air force action of Russian Ukraine, it's not Russian army, it's Wagner group. And Wagner and Wagner group, it's just the best known. There is a bunch of these groups. Furthermore, volunteer battalions. What is volunteer battalions? Uh, volunteer battalions is that uh, Putin basically commanded governors, but um, he commanded governors to form volunteer battalions in their own regions, arm them and equip them at their own expense, and send them to Ukraine. Uh, what happened? Again, trajectories diverged. Some regions, they couldn't really do this because they have no money. For example, Chuvasha, good case. Um, basically, uh, the head of Chuvasha, he formed battalions because Putin said him so, but he couldn't equip, he couldn't arm them, and he didn't even pay them because Chuvasha has no money. Some regions, they're just impoverished, and it's impossible to impose these expenses upon them. Some regions, indeed, formed these battalions and sent them, sent them as Ukraine, to Ukraine as Putin commanded. Again, Chechnya is the best example. But a number of regions, which I'm not going to specify, they formed battalions, they armed them, they equipped them, and they didn't send them anywhere. They still are in Russia, they still are in their home regions, under the protect of training. Uh, I'm not going to name these regions, I'll just say that uh, these are not ethnic republics, these, these are regions that are perceived as ethnically Russian or majority ethnic Russian. Uh, and at this point, it seems that some of these actors are basically preparing for chaos. So if chaos starts, it's better to have your own armed man in your home region. So this leads us into the question of the Russian population and the impact that mobilization is having on... Uh, lives, public opinion, the, I guess, future of Russia as well. Um, what What is the, we, we've talked a lot about kind of governors and Putin a little bit. What does the view look like from below? Oh, that's really interesting. You see, um, lots of Russians, hundreds of thousands, they escaped from Russia to neighboring countries, mostly to Kazakhstan, Georgia, straight after mobilization was declared. Some foreigners, some Westerners, they would presume that all of these people are basically anti-Putin, anti-imperialist, anti-Russian war. That's not the case. Some of them are, others are not. Uh, in fact, it's pretty funny because some of the refugees, they have strongly imperialist and jingoist views. Uh, it's very common, for example, in Kazakhstan, when Russian refugees come to Kazakhstan and tell to Kazakhs, you know, actually not Kazakhstan should be Russia. It's like absolutely unfair that um, you guys hold these lands. We must take them back at some point. It's very, very common. Um, so, uh, and many basically support Putin's war. They support like Donbass being Russian, Crimea being Russian. Why do they run? Because they don't want to die in the war. So very many people, they uh, support this agenda. They just don't want to die in the, on the battle themselves. The line between those who escape and those who basically obey to mobilization and those who basically comply, it's not about uh, accepting wholeheartedly the Putin's and the Kremlin's agenda. It's about um, how optimistic are you about your own life how much do you value it even? The thing is, uh, many people who would, uh, who basically support Putin's agenda, they just value their own life. 
their current socioeconomic perspectives acceptable or good, and they hope for the better. They hope for the better future. So they run away because they don't want to die. Uh, many of people who may not even like wholeheartedly support this agenda, they basically gave up. They give up on their own life. And in the province, it's very, very common. Um, so it's mostly about your socioeconomic situation currently and how you uh, estimate your socioeconomic prospects in the future. Many people who comply, they just gave up. That's one thing. Uh, another thing is that uh, this war is very uncharacteristic for Russia in a sense that in the past, Mm, the mobilized were not really paid anything or almost anything. So in the first world, in the World War One, in the World War Two, and of course in all the preceding Tsar's wars, majority of privates, majority of private soldiers, they were not compensated or compensated very, very, very little. The war was not lucrative for broader masses. It could be lucrative for officers, but not for the file and rank. This war is very uncharacteristic because for the first time in Russian history, file and rank common soldiers are really being paid and they're being paid a lot by provincial standards. So it's very common in a small town, you could be earning like average salary could be like 30,000 rubles per month. But on the front line, you could easily earn two or 300,000 rubles per month. You are being paid a lot. That's one thing. That's not a lot from Moscow perspective. But that's a lot from the small-town perspective. Uh, another thing is compensations for deaths. They are from provincial perspective, they're exorbitant, they're enormously high. Uh, they would really pay, and a lot of people got this compensation, like 7 million rubles uh, per uh, their family member dead. Uh, I think, uh, I can't say current, like, exact estimate, but I would say about 100 grand in dollars. It's really lots for Russian province. And in some uh, smaller towns, it really changed the real estate market, for example. It created a new demand because lots of people died from there, so their family members are buying new real estate. Um, so it created a businesses. In some, for example, very interesting thing is Pskov. Pskov, it's a Russian region bordering Estonia. It's really poor. And it hosts Vadave. It hosts air, uh, airborne troops, paratroopers. And paratroopers are the troops that suffered heaviest casualties in Ukraine. And it meant that it created a business. Uh, like some local girls, they were really doing business, marrying one Vadave guy after another. Because they are dying quickly enough. So you can get several compensation in a few months. Jesus um, Christ. Just combination of two factors. Poverty. And you have lots of troops that are dying very, very quickly. Uh, that's not the case, for example, with artillery guys, because they are not dying quickly enough. Uh, so it really, mm, that's maybe what many Westerners uh, don't understand. That's for poor Russian countryside. It's absolutely monetary incentive. That's much more than you could earn in your life. Uh, so for this reason, many actually were enthusiastic about it. Many were enthusiastic. Uh, but in a sense, it's sort of Ponzi scheme because Russian government indeed paid lots of compensations and high compensations, but basically only to the first few, like dozens of thousands killed in action. It can't do this indefinitely. So it um, compensated lavishly 
families or the few first um, dozen, dozen thousand killed in action, incentivizing the rest to comply with this mobilization. Because if your family members die, you will be compensated lavishly, but it cannot continue indefinitely. So I think the those families that now are enthusiastic about their family members being sent into Ukraine, they are going to be cheated mostly. They are not going to get financial compensation they are hoping for. Um, what, what does this mean for uh, uh, social stability? Current mobilization. Uh, because um, until recently, until basically this month, um, you, until the late September, you could avoid mobilization simply uh, not going to war. So basically until late September, it was voluntary. Now it is becoming compulsory. And I think actually per se, per se, it is increasing social stability. It is increasing social stability because it is a means of terror. It is a means of uh, kind of neuroticizing population. Because in the past, just a month ago, you could make a conscious decision to go to war or you could have avoided if you didn't want to. It was optional. Now, as it is becoming compulsory, uh, in fact, population becomes more submissive because you want to avoid it at all cost possible. Uh, so, for example, now, uh, people who go to, like, a few months ago, if you would go to demonstration, most probably, most probably, you risk, like, up to month in jail, uh, at least for the first two times. But, first two times, you are arrested. But now, you are at risk with being mobilized. So, basically, they mobilize people who go for demonstrations, and it's a great way Jeez. to enforce stability. Uh, another thing is that it could be forced mobilization, it could be a good way to change and to correct the ethnic balance in the country. So an interesting thing about mobilization, it is very, very uneven from region to region. For example, in Moscow, a relatively small share of, of population is being mobilized, uh, relatively few. But, for example, in some small Arctic villages in North Yakutia, on Sahalin and other, uh, often in Siberian or Far Eastern regions, they are literally mobilizing all available males, basically everyone in the village. Um, so while mobilization, for example, for Moscow is partial, for like some parts of northern Yakutia or for some parts of Krasnoyarsk in Siberia, it's total. They're dragging everyone. And it could be a way yeah, to kind of use colonial resources in a war in another colony, and also to correct the ethnic balance. And how about into the medium term? I would say that, um, like, when this all started, so basically in spring, I saw three variants for the future of Russia. One would be, it's basically, one would be Putin keeping power. And I called it North Korea. That is not very, like, precise. I call it North Korea scenario mostly for the Western audience to be more understandable. But actually, I meant more like Donbass. So uh, the same practices of statecraft, of policy making that were first uh, used and were first designed in Donbass are now being scaled up into the Russia proper. Um, this is militarization and statization of economy. 
it is and basically it is using uh, the bulk of male population as a cannon fodder. Uh, it is also like eliminating the last like remnants or pretenses of the rule of law. Uh, and this, as long as Putin stays in power, uh, this scenario, uh, Russia will go by this scenario, Russia will go this track, North Korea or Donbass track. And technically it's possible, and um, I don't see why uh, this factor alone would undermine Putin's power. Uh, so Putin stays in power, Russia goes North Korea style. Second scenario, it's uh, imperial reboot. It's basically if um, some faction of Putin's ruling class decides to kind of uh, de-escalate the situation by giving power to the liberal opposition of, of Moscow. So it would be to uh, Navalny and his comrades and so on. That is possible. But and that could potentially allow to de-escalate the situation and to um, maybe, uh, if not the lift sanctions at all, but at least to moderate the sanctions regime. But uh, since March and April, now I see this scenario as far less probable. So I think this could happen, potentially, though less probable than before. I just don't think these guys would be able to hold power. So more probably it would be just first iteration of crisis. And third scenario that is becoming more and more probable with every day, uh, it's national divorce. divorce. It's basically Russia breaking up to smaller states. I don't think it would go on, it would happen uh, like um, immediately and in one iteration, but rather in a number of iterations. First de facto and only then formally. So it is highly likely that at some point uh, the federal center would just lose control over a number of regions for a number of reasons. First reason is that power is always mythological, it is based on mythos. And uh, any military defeats, they to greater or less extent, they harm the imperial mythos. But they harm to different degree. For example, the military defeat to NATO, the military defeat to America is certainly less shameful and it could be a manageable shame. For example, the loss, the defeat of Russian Empire in Crimean War, predominantly to Britain and France, it was shame, but it was manageable shame. Russian Empire survived it. But the loss, the defeat of Russian Empire to the Japan um, in early 20th century, it was unmanageable shame. Russian Empire never really recovered. So I think um, that the difference is the military defeat to the US could have been potentially manageable to Putin because it would be like some honorable lost cause. We mm, lost to the overwhelming uh, enemy and now we could kind of regroup and try again in the future. That could be manageable. But the military defeat by Ukraine would be totally unmanageable. I don't think Russia, Russian not only political system but imperial system is going to survive it because the honor, the prestige and the allure of Moscow would be too much destroyed by that. I don't know. That's like, for example, 
consider the following. Qing China could be losing to uh, in opium wars to the British and to the French without critical damage to the system. But the defeat to Japan was absolutely critical. That was unmanageable. And that would be the case with the Russian defeat uh, to Ukraine. So if Russia loses to Ukraine, um, I think this probably would trigger the start of uh, the system's total disruption. And another factor to consider, another factor to consider, is that um, monopoly on violence, monopoly of uh, Moscow, formalized bureaucratic structures like army, FSB, National Guard on controlling people with arms, it very much diluted this year. So basically, if in the beginning, almost all the armed people in Russia, except for small Kadyrov's army and even smaller Shoigu's army in Tuva, they're controlled directly by Moscow and by Putin. Now it's just not the case. Now Russia has plenty of private armies. So, and I think it, it may be very interesting, even poetic in a sense. Because, you know, all these wars, they are not waged for foreign policy considerations. They are waged for domestic policy considerations. And in a sense, most probably, when Putin was making a decision to invade into Ukraine, probably he wanted to export the Russian internal chaos uh, abroad and to stabilize the situation in Russia this way. But it could easily turn the other way around. Uh, Chaos exported outwards would now be imported inward. Um, so, in a sense, in a sense, it's like very, very like uh, remote. It's very unexact analogy. But think about War of Roses. First, England sent all these armed guys into France, but once they returned, it created a political chaos without England itself. Uh, it's not rigorous analogy. I am just illustrating my point. Sure. When all these rambas returning from Ukraine return to Russia, it would be a huge problem, even if uh, Moscow structures of power kept total control over them. Even that, then that would be a problem. Uh, but in situation when Russia already has a number of private armies, uh, I think this problem could be unmanageable, especially if Moscow suffers a defeat. So, so Camille, um, you know, as a non native English speaker, you over the past six months have written tweet threads that have been seen by like half the planet and have 350,000 Twitter followers. What has the experience of, um, uh, you know, talking about the war in Ukraine and Russia and Russian history um, on American social media taught you? Well, I don't think that being non-native speaker is a major obstacle here, not at all. Modern English, especially American English, it's not golden Latin, it's barbarian Latin. So in order to be <laughs> like learned with it, you need to master barbarian Latin. That's how it works. If, uh, I would say, if the world was still the UK dominated, then it would be a problem. Because indeed in the UK, the language and the style it has very strong class connotations. So in the UK, it is indeed very, very important to speak, to write and speak properly with correct accent and even the North English accent, for example, uh, it is not correct at all. So yeah, 
Uh, America is much more democratic in this sense, much more immigrant-oriented. Mm, so basically, the American English, which now dominates the planet, it is Pidgin English, and you need to master it. I hope I did. Uh, so, uh, regarding the, um, like, Twitter, I think uh, I found it very important um, to deliver not even so much factoids, like specific factoids, but my perspective um, and my interpretation to broader international audience. Why? Uh, because I think that the narrative about Russia, um, it is being presented suboptimally. In fact, it is being controlled by a very narrow group of people, uh, mostly of Moscow establishment, even St. Petersburg is much less represented, and by Western media analysts, researchers, who are um, their acquaintances, friends, and their connections. So basically, it's mostly one club. In reality, a very narrow group of people is hugely, vastly overrepresented, and mostly this is, it is a group of people based in Moscow and doing their careers in Moscow, while the rest of country basically has no voice at all. Um, many great uh, projects, be it in media, be it in politics, be it in civil, in civil society, have no coverage at all, because the rest of uh, country, except uh, from Moscow, has zero representation. And this system, which is absolutely insane and absolutely unfair, is being reinforced, of course, by, um, I would say, too many of the Western media establishment. Uh, that is something I want to change. So I want to uh, present and to convey another voices and another perspective, except from perspective of Moscow. Um, in fact, very, uh, quite often, when I made some statements and made some claims and uh, made some assessments, for example, about being very concerned with Navalny movements, um, adhering to Russian nationalist and imperial agenda, and when I made a prognosis that should they come to power, uh, they will start a crusade against minorities. And uh, too many Americans were just surprised by that like calling this perspective interesting and unheard. It's not unheard at all. It's very common. Uh, I mean, um, very many minorities, especially in Caucasus, they are very anxious about these guys coming to power. It's just in the West nobody heard about it because these people have no representation. Only Moscow has representation in the West. Sure. And that is something I want to change. What would you ask folks to do um, to support you, your work, Ukraine more generally? Uh, very soon, I'll be launching two initiatives. One is basically I'll announce my research company and we'll come with uh, a first paper, which I consider breakthrough, but I'm going to announce it a little bit later. I'm just, you know, making a teaser right now, and I made a teaser in this, like, uh, podcast. And another thing is that I'm launching an initiative, you know, um, there, you know that uh, ethnic minorities in Russia, they're being mobilized disproportionately. So many of them are just escaping. And some of them have a ways to escape. For example, like Mongol peoples, including uh, like Buryats, 
Kalmyks and Tuva, whom Mongols consider king, they can escape to Mongolia, for example, it accepts them. Uh, but thing is that many other minorities, they do not really have many initiatives of support. For example, people of Volga Ural region, Idelural, that includes Turkic people such as Tatars and Bashkirs, and it includes Finnogric uh, and uh, Chuvars, and it includes Finnogric, for example, as uh, Mari or Udmurt people. And uh, being poor, uh, especially the latter, being mostly poor and rural re regions, they're especially targeted during this mobilization. So uh, now I'm preparing another initiative of helping them to relocate to other countries. Uh, we are now working this out. So I'm just like announcing this in advance. And if potentially um, some was someone was interested in supporting this initiative, I would be highly grateful for that because we could um, because we would focus basically on draftable age males, and we could save many 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 people of uh, being forcibly sent uh, to war, uh, which I consider a good thing. Yeah. 